0: Hello, and welcome to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our third series, The Making of a Pioneer, Toast is collaborating with the National Portrait Gallery here in central London to explore the lives of six pioneering women, past and present. All have a portrait hanging in the gallery, and we will be joined by authors, artists, and in some cases, the subjects themselves to discuss what it is that makes a pioneer and where this pioneering spirit was born. John Opie's portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft hangs in room 18 of the National Portrait Gallery. A woman in high-waisted white dress and soft hat, her gaze falling somewhere off to the right. The sitter's pose reveals little of her revolutionary life and the progressiveness of her views. She was a radical thinker, a feminist, journalist and author, famed particularly for her 1792 work, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which she discussed the novel idea that the sexes should be considered equal. I do not wish for them to have power over men, she wrote of women, but over themselves. When she sat for Opie, Wollstonecraft was pregnant with her daughter, who would become known as the writer Mary Shelley. Wollstonecraft died days after her daughter's birth, and in the years that followed, her role in the feminist movement became largely forgotten. In 1974, Claire Tomlin wrote her first book, A Biography of Wollstonecraft. It kindled huge interest in her life and work, and she quickly became recognised as one of Britain's most important intellectuals. Today, a vindication of the rights of women is firmly part of the feminist canon. You
1: the big house. This was the coach house, and partly, I think, the gardener's hovel, and this was all the kitchen garden. I take it as a hovel. It's well, beautiful. well, it was.
0: it was. I visit Tomlin at a home near the river in Richmond, where books line the walls and find themselves piled high on tables, and the day's crossword sits half-finished on the hearth. That's,
1: a, that's the only ice house in private is possession in London. Wow. So it's great fun
0: for grandchildren. I bet it is. Is that a quince? a So this is your book. Uh, it was first published in 1974. And there is a picture of the Opie portrait in here, isn't there?
1: Yes. That's the early one, where she looks like a governess. Yes. Yeah. And this it's this one. That's the portrait, you see. Yeah. So it's so interesting because, of course, it was the last one done of her and he was a wonderful painter. They were friends and it shows the depth of her character. It is one of the great portraits, I think. And she was pregnant, wasn't she, at the she time? She was pregnant with Mary, yes. She was pregnant and she was soon to die. Terrible. And, the port- and after her death, Godwin had her portrait, of course, hanging in the house and so her two little daughters must have grown up looking at that portrait.
0: When you're starting a biography of of a figure like Mary,
1: do you go to a portrait, do you go to the physical images of someone? Well, you certainly search for them. I mean, it was my first biography. I knew nothing about writing biographies. When I'd been at Cambridge, no one had even mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft's name to me. I sort of discovered her letters and wrote a piece about them in the New Statesman and got lots of publishers saying, write a book about her. So I didn't know what I was doing, but I certainly looked, I looked hard for pictures and was, it was very exciting to find various pictures of her. But the Opie is, of course, the great one.
0: When you say you sort of discovered her letters, how does one sort of discover letters both? By-
1: Oh, well, I was in the London Library, I was thinking about Byron, I think, and somehow I found this volume there and looked, picked it up and started reading. And I thought, these letters are absolutely extraordinary. Here was a woman 200 years ago living life really quite like mine. Uh, <laughs> and she was working in London, she had a, a job on a magazine. <laughs> she was having problems with men and tried to combine childcare and work. And I thought, this is just so extraordinary. And so I, I just felt really interested in her. I, I lived in North London at that time, so if you Store Street, where she lived, I, I felt this huge bond. And I went off to the British Museum to look at the copies of the magazine she worked for, the Analytical Review. And, of course, you have to send for them, volume after volume. And to my utter amazement at the British Museum, they said, oh, all right, we'll let you go into the stacks. And you can go work in the stacks and just take wow. them out you want. And that amazing privilege. And how did the woman
0: unfold for you from those letters and then seeing her, her magazine work? Who did she become?
1: Well, she herself thought she was probably the first sort of woman journalist. This wonderful publisher called Joseph Johnson, whom she got to meet and offered her the work. He was really the most important man in her life. I think he saw all the possibilities in her. So he encouraged her to write. She started writing books, um, thoughts on the education of daughters, original stories. He knew Blake, so William Blake came and illustrated. So she knew Blake. And he introduced her into a very, very interesting group of left-wing and literary and artistic people in London in the 1780s. Before that, the extraordinary thing about her, she was born into a middle-class family. Her grandfather was a weaver who made a lot of money. She didn't get very much education. And what she did, as soon as she could, was to find work. She found work as a companion, helping an old, rich woman. And then she nursed her mother when her mother was dying. That's another job, nursing. She went to live with her friend Fanny's family. They were very poor, and so they earned their living sewing, so she did sewing. She set up a school and ran a school. She then went to work as a governess in a rich family in Ireland. So by the time she came to write about work for women, she'd pretty well (laughs) done every possible job that a woman could do, which gave her great authority. And when she was writing, what were the
0: attitudes then to women working and to women's education?
1: There were quite a lot of women who were... Highly educated, the the dissenters. She knew the dissenter Richard Price when she was running her school, and he was a friend of Joseph Priestley. They were all keen on educating women as well as men, so there was definitely a movement of encouragement. And in fact, when she published her most famous book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, in seventeen ninety two, it was read by men and women. It really made a huge uh, impact. Who was it who called her a hyena in petticoats? (laughs) It was Walpole, who lived along the river there. (laughs) And his response to
0: the vindication of the rights of women, was that typical of of a lot of people, particularly men?
1: Uh, Well, the fact is, at first, the book was read with great interest and, on the whole, approval. But, of course, what happened is that she then went to Paris to see the revolution in action, the French Revolution, the most amazing thing that had ever happened, you know. And then, as you know, the the terror came, and this had meant that Mary Wollstonecraft was somehow associated with the French Revolution afterwards. And after she died, her husband, Godwin, wrote a very frank account of her life, and people were shocked by her life. They were shocked by her having had a child with a man she wasn't married to. They were shocked by her supporting the French Revolution. Uh, So her reputation was really blackened. And this very curious thing happened that she more or less disappears from notice in the 19th century. Was that purely because of scandal? I think it was. I think it's because somehow she was associated with unorthodox sexual behavior and with the French Revolution. And it's really taken the 20th century to um, bring her back. When when I was writing the book, I used to call it Mary Who, because nobody could ever remember her name, Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary what? (laughs) Mary Who? Why did Godwin do that? Godwin did that because he believed in the truth, and he believed the importance of absolute honesty even when it was embarrassing even even when you know, perhaps you shouldn't he wanted he wanted the truth to be told
0: do you think it had implications
1: so for her daughters
0: her daughter? did, did even the, the truth help carry them you know particularly mary into being the, the writer she was you mean mary Sorry. shelley you mean Sorry, her daughter yes. yeah do you think that knowing the truth about her mother and having that unvarnished account of her life allowed her to live differently as well and to be a writer
1: Possibly, she was so young when she ran off with Shelley. I mean, she was she was a very clever child, and she was a great reader, and uh, she was obviously going to be be remarkable. And she revered the memory of her mother, and she would go and sit at her mother's grave. You know, in fact, with Shelley, yes, it probably encouraged her to allow herself to act unorthodoxly.
0: When you said about Mary Wollstonecraft's upbringing. Can you see the roots of her political belief in that? you said her family's very wealthy.
1: Well, they were, we're quite wealthy. wealthy. Yes, they Need were well-to- do, although her father her father lost lost money. She certainly had sympathy for the poor as a child, tried to help the poor. When her best friend married and went out to Spain and fell ill she actually got herself she got a boat she went out to look after her i mean she was very very good and kind um in circumstances like that
0: i suppose what i'm trying to work out is whether that came from her alone or whether that was a product of her upbringing the person
1: who would get on a boat to spain i think it was her i don't think it was her upbringing and then there was the incident of her her sister eliza who married and was had a baby and was terribly unhappy and this is a sort of slightly typical incident in Mary's life. Mary, right, I'll rescue her. So she went and did rescue her, leaving the baby behind, and said she would look after her, and did, and took her in. And But it was a rather sort of mixed thing, because the, the child, that was one of the things I found out when I was researching the child then died. And, you know, she wanted to rescue her from a husband she didn't like, but she wasn't really able to make things much better for her. I suppose these things are very complicated. The when she had her child
0: out of wedlock, because that wasn't with Godwin, was it? Was no,
1: no, it? It was no, in, no. Was that was, France, in, that was her American lover met in Paris. In Paris this Paris, wonderful, yeah. <laughs> wonderful romantic episode, which turned bad, of course, because he was a rather lightweight figure. But how unusual was it for someone like Godwin to take in
0: somebody else's child?
1: Oh, I think Godwin was absolutely ready to to do that and loved her, loved his stepdaughter. He'd written Political Justice, he'd written Caleb Williams. He didn't live by the the sort of conventions of his society. And what was his effect on her writing? Well, he was a very good writer, so I suppose, and and he encouraged her to to write and read. So people like Coleridge were coming to the house and (laughs) she had a very, very good... Uh, start educationally.
0: What about Mary's actual writing in itself? How do you feel about away from her ideas but her actual the weight of her sentences?
1: Well she wrote very well, she wrote very clearly in A Vindication. Her children's stories are delightful and her first novel Mary is not very marvellous but the unfinished novel Maria or The Wrongs of Woman is really an important bit of writing and although it's unfinished it's extremely brilliant in its its way I think if she'd lived who knows what she she would certainly have gone on writing she would certainly have gone on thinking but it would have been in a difficult atmosphere And when you published your biography
0: how fast was the sort of turnaround in our perception of her and, and the widespread knowledge that we now have of her?
1: Well, I I don't want to claim too much for for my no, biography. <laughs> but it was it was rather wonderful. I, I did get a, an amazing response. I got extraordinary reviews uh, and rather sort of arguing reviews from different historians. So there was quite a lot of argument going on. What did they argue about? Well, I suppose whether she was a wonderful, noble, heroic figure <laughs> or whether she was actually rather difficult woman who had the wrong ideas. Um, Is the word difficult
0: a word that's used towards women, particularly women who've done something slightly different? You're
1: right, yes. It is, of course it is, Yes. yes. Do you think that you are a difficult woman sometimes? I wish I were more difficult. I took the line in life of doing the sort of conventional thing for women who want to do something, write books, because you can combine that with being married and having children. And now I look at the young women who are in Parliament and doing practical things, and I admire them so much, and I wish, I regret that I wasn't much more active in my life. Did you personally take any lessons
0: from writing about Mary?
1: Well, I think one of her great attributes was courage and I admire courage. Uh, I haven't had too many demands on my courage but I I think to try and where necessary fight your way through life is a good idea. Do you see any echoes of
0: Mary in any of the current political campaigners or campaigners for gender equality?
1: Well yes gender equality absolutely. I I think she probably would have been amused by me too. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Well, because it was so extraordinary, isn't it, that women should finally... I mean, she does one of the things she doesn't talk about in The Vindication of the Rights of Women is men pressing their attentions on you when you don't want them. But, by God, she would have done if she'd thought about it, I think. Why do you think she didn't think
0: about it? Because it was just a normal thing?
1: Um, I don't know. I don't know. She certainly doesn't bring it up at all. Although she wrote this great unfinished novel, which is about a prostitute. And that was really, really an extraordinary thing to do. Unfinished novel, which Godwin published to his great credit. So you could say that that was, I suppose, Me Too, wasn't it? She, she did think about it. Are there any particular views that you question that she held? I don't think there are, no. I, I think she was, she was pretty well on the nail most of the time. <laughs> I mean, of course, of course men and women should have equal political rights. Of course they should all be able to work in all the professions. Yes.
0: I mean, that was 1792, is that right? Yes. Why did it take so very, very long? <laughs> well,
1: why, why did it take so? Well, I do think that the effect of the French Revolution was very important and that there was this huge sort of backlash. I mean, we've just been talking about Peterloo uh, uh, in England. There was a sort of terrible pause and... Uh, uh, thing. And then there was this sort of awful stuff that arose in Victorian England of sort of women being put on a pedestal, you know, to be, have a moral superiority as long as they didn't actually ask for anything else. <laughs> they were just there to be admired and to behave better than men. And that was good enough. And that's, that was pretty awful, wasn't it? Yes.
0: Where do you think she sits now in our cultural imagination?
1: Well I think I think she is absolutely established as one of the great early feminists who set down the program really that's what she did she gave us the program for what had to be pursued do you prefer writing about women or men well, you see, I started writing about women, but when you write a book about someone, you're always writing about women and men and men and women. So it's not quite like that. To write about Mary Wollstonecraft, I had to research Godwin and all sorts of Joseph Johnson. I, I learned and Richard Price. I have to say, when I first wrote a book with the name of a man on the cover, that was Peeps. My copy editor, said to me, she said, you will get a completely different audience now when you go around giving talks. And she was right. And I looked up from, you know, the first time I gave a talk on Peeps, and there were rows and rows of men. And he, people used to say to me when I began writing, <laughs> I used to say, men I knew said, oh, yes, my wife likes your books. Or, oh, yes, my mother reads your books. I used to think, OK, but what about you? <laughs> Why don't you... And, when I wrote about, started writing about men, men started reading my books. It's a bit odd, but of course, writing about men, you write about women too. And Mrs. Mrs. Pepys, Elizabeth. You know, is without Elizabeth, there would be no diary, really. Do you think
0: that the audiences for your book about Mary Wollstonecraft felt um, possessive about her in a way that maybe the Pepys? all used
1: the first talk I ever gave was about Mary Wollstonecraft in. Um, it was in Lewis, and I started comparing Mary Wollstonecraft and Wordsworth, who were both in Paris during the Revolution, who both had love affairs. And Wordsworth abandoned his girlfriend and his child and came back to England and became and Wordsworth a great poet, you know, but concealed everything that happened and became a sort of idolised figure. Mary Wollstonecraft at the same time had came back with her child, did not conceal her child and became a reviled figure. And a man in the audience got up and said, I'm not going to sit here and listen to you abusing Wordsworth. <laughs> and, you know, the audience, everyone... I've never forgotten this. Everyone sort of turned round. So, I, you know, I went through it again and said what I meant. But it was quite an experience that he somehow saw that by making this, I think, actually quite important comparison, that I was abusing Wordsworth. That revilement
0: that she experienced. How did she deal with it, having, having read her letters?
1: Well, it was mostly after her death, the revilement. I mean, she dealt with Imlay, her flighty lover's cruel treatment, by attempting suicide, which was terrible, terrible, terrible. And luckily was rescued from the river. How did she deal with the
0: response to the vindication of the rights of women?
1: Well it was a good response of course it was terrific Mm -hmm. it was wonderful so it, it made her famous and at that point she wasn't likely to hear much of a disapproval. But she must have had an immense resilience to do all the things she did. She had strength and courage as I've said I mean yes yes she was very strong and she was a very hard worker always working.
0: Were there any great surprises that you found
1: out about her? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> because once I'd found them out, <laughs> you know, they stopped being so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were. I mean, it was it was a, a wonderful journey of discovery. I went over to Paris, you see. I went over to Paris, working in the French archives, and I found out a lot about the French women during the Revolution who were much less effective than Mary. Uh, but Condorcet, the great French philosopher and mathematician Condorcet, He was the first French person to write about the rights of women. And so I found that sort of thing, which was very exciting for me. Was that a
0: parallel time then? Yes, it was. It
1: was the same time. And she was supposed to meet him, but I don't think they ever did meet, because, of course, he was then in trouble with Robespierre and he was going to be in prison and killed himself. But uh, those those sort of paths. Well, this is the wonderful thing about writing biographies that you are led down quite unexpected paths and you discover whole new lots of people and and stories to tell, which is marvellous. That's why I like writing biographies. I mean, my son keeps saying, "Why are you working still, Mum? You should be. You should live an ordinary life now. You're old." But I, but I, I find it completely wonderful to absorb myself in other people's lives and.
0: And then you would stop being you, I presume, if you... I stopped. suppose
1: I would, yes, yes, yes. I'll tell him that, thank you. Does he expect you to take up golf? Or do you some <laughs> <kind of laughs> I don't know what he wants me to do. I don't know <laughs> what he wants me to do. I think a norm- He wants me to be a normal woman. I think that's unlikely to happen now, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's too late. Good, keep it that way.
0: Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. All the portraits discussed in this series are part of the National Portrait Gallery's permanent collection. The gallery, founded in 1856, is situated in St. Martin's Place. Tucked behind Trafalgar Square, it faces out towards Covent Garden. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To listen to more episodes from this series, and earlier series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.